Good evening, everybody, and again, Merry Christmas and welcome. Before we begin our service, uh, just a couple of things to point out about the candlelight portion of our service. Uh, because of the rain tonight, we are going to stay indoors. Uh, we're not going to sing outside. Now, other than that, there's also a couple other changes to note. Uh, one thing is, I'd point out, if when you are lighting your candles, if you have a lit candle, do not tilt that candle. It should go without saying, but I've seen this done. Don't, it, when your candle is unlit, tilt it toward a lit candle and then straighten it back out. Uh, and our fire inspectors and the like would appreciate this very much, plus we don't want to get wax all over everything. Now what we are going to do after communion tonight, I'm going to have, ask you all to be seated after we sing our post-communion hymn. At that time, the elders are going to start working through these aisles and lighting candles. We'll light down the pew. This will be while we are seated. Um, after everyone gets lit, lit up, the lights, somebody laughed, come on, come on. After all of your candles are lighted and your seatbelts are firmly in place, um, after all your candles are lit, okay, anyway. Grammar. This is why I write my stuff down, and I didn't tonight. After everyone's candles are lit, uh, the lights are going to go down. I'm going to ask you all to stand, and we're going to sing Silent Night, Holy Night, by candlelight. Uh, we will then have the benediction. We'll blow out our candles, and our be we'll be dismissed. Are we clear? All is clear, I think they say in Dutch. All right, with that, let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God.
Let's stand together. If you would, take your bulletin in hand, and you will find there a responsive call to worship, and respond with the parts in bold. God will call us to worship from Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Let us pray. Father, we come tonight to offer you the sacrifice of praise. But our sacrifices are nothing in comparison to the great gift that you have given us in the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us your spirit tonight that we might give him the glory due your name and do his. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our hymnals to number 227 and sing on Christmas night, All Christians Sing. Amen. Please be seated.
Again, take your bulletin in hand and you'll find there a catechism lesson from the Westminster Shorter Catechism dealing with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will ask you these two questions and ask you to respond with the bold print. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Now we'll read of this Holy One who was born without sin and his sufferings in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together now and sing hymn number 213. What child is this? You may be seated. Our New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 2. And we'll read just verses 10 through 12. And this is the passage our homily is going to be based on tonight. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray now and ask for his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for this time of peace and stillness where we can gather around your word to submit to your word and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you use your inspired word now to minister to our sinful and needy hearts? Send your Holy Spirit now for the sake of Jesus Christ, for we ask it in his name. Amen. The poet uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins said that Christ plays in 10,000 places. And the name of my homily tonight is Jesus Speaks in Unexpected Places. He shows up in unexpected places. And in the Christmas narrative, he shows up in a most unexpected place, that being in a manger. I want to spend a few moments talking about what that manger is and what it can point us to. So what is a manger? We all know what a manger is, but we kind of don't know what a manger is. But basically, it's a feeding trough. It's a food bowl. It's where animals come to eat. Shepherds of Israel, behold your king in a food bowl. It's unexpected. Leon Morris, the commentator, said, In Bethlehem that night, there might be one or two more babies wrapped in swaddling cloths, but surely only one was lying in a manger. It's the most unexpected place there possibly could be. And it's fitting that when Jesus was born, he was laid in a trough because part of what Luke wants to show us in his gospel as a whole and what really all of the gospels want to show us is that there's a sense in which Jesus never left the trough. So he's born in a cattle stall. Whether it's a cave or some form of archaic barn, we don't know. But you can imagine the young Jesus you know, going outside and leaving the door open. And his mom says to him, close the door, Jesus. Were you born in a barn? And he says, why, yes, mother. Actually, I was born in a barn. I think of the passage in John 4 where Jesus in the middle of the day is talking to a Samaritan woman whom you know, any respectable rabbi, much less religious leader, wouldn't give the time of day to this person. But Jesus is ministering to her and it says in John 4.27 that his disciples marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why are you talking with her? To me, the subtext of that is they were all asking each other, why is he talking to her? Why is he talking to her? They just didn't have the guts to say it to Jesus. I think of another story where Jesus is being criticized because he's at a party hanging out with a bunch of sinners. You know, this is God made flesh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, and here he is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You wouldn't think God would be hanging out in those type of places with those type of people. You fast forward in his life and when you see him return to the temple in Luke's gospel, he's turning over tables and he's cracking a whip 
And he's chasing out the money changers who are taking advantage of God's poor people by selling sacrifices to them, trying to make a profit off, off the house of God. And you imagine Jesus, meek and mild, with a whip turning over tables. Presbyterians love things done decently and in order. And you say, where's the decency in order, Jesus? I, don't, I thought God would have had better manners than this. Or you picture Jesus at the cross, walking down the road, bleeding, crowned with thorns, half naked, with a wooden cross draped across his back, climbing to an unexpected throne, a cross where he would be crucified to die for our sins, for your sins. It's also unexpected. You know, the Old Testament predicted it all, but yet still, it's, it's inevitable, yet it's still surprising. And the moment you think you've really got it figured out, you realize you don't have it figured out because it continues to surprise you and to surprise you. But if you want to look for Jesus, the angel's message to the shepherd is, you go to the manger. You go to the trough, the food bowl. And there's a sense in which the whole world is a manger. Because this world is where Christ reveals himself to us. It's where he revealed himself to shepherds. It's where he revealed himself to wise men. And it's where he reveals himself to us because it's where we are. Uh, the Presbyterian, late Presbyterian minister and novelist, Frederick Buechner, tells a story about a pastor who volunteered to feed the sheep of one of his congregants while that congregant was away for the holidays and couldn't tend his animals. And Beekner tells the story as only he can. He says, the young clergyman and his wife do all the things you do on Christmas Eve. They string the lights and hang the ornaments. They supervise the hanging of the stockings. They tuck in the children. They lug the presents down out of hiding and pile them under the tree just as they're about to fall asleep exhausted into bed. The husband remembers his neighbor's sheep. The man asked him to feed them for him while he was away. And in the press of other matters, that night he forgot all about them. So down the hill he goes, through knee-deep snow. He gets two bales of hay from the barn and carries them out of the shed. There's a 40-watt bulb hanging by its cord from the low roof, and he turns it on. The sheep huddle in a corner, watching as he snaps the baling twine, shakes the squares of hay apart, and starts scattering it. Then they come bumbling and shoving to get at it with their foolish, mild faces, the puffs of their breath showing in the air. He's reaching to turn off the bulb and leave when suddenly he realizes where he is. The winter darkness, the glimmer of light, the smell of the hay, and the sound of the animals eating. Where he is, of course, is in the manger. He only just saw it. He, a preacher whose business it is above everything else to have an eye for such things, is all but blind in that eye. He who on his best days believes that everything that is most precious anywhere comes from that manger might easily have gone home to bed never knowing that he himself had just been in the manger. The world is the manger. Buechner is making the point that we can get so busy living our lives, and it's especially true around Christmas time, so busy getting 
presence, so busy trying to make our children happy, so busy cooking meals, so busy inviting people over and being invited over and going to parties. Like We can say Merry Christmas a thousand times and forget that Christmas is about the birth of Christ, that it's about the fact that Jesus Christ condescended to become a man, to lie in the manger, to walk in this world in which we live. I read a church father, and I can't quote him exactly, but he said, you know how when a king or a dignitary comes to some city, that whole, that, that whole city is honored. I like it. The closest thing in the United States that I could come up with is, you know, when the Olympics came to Atlanta, they still have monuments there commemorating the fact that the greatest athletes in the world stepped on the soil here in Atlanta, Georgia. They graced this place with their presence, and we'll never forget it. See, God came down and became man. He stepped down on this earthly soil and honored this world with his presence. And we're so prone to forget it. Cornelius Van Til said that Jesus confronts us everywhere. Because if he doesn't confront us everywhere, he can't really confront us anywhere. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this extremely well. I was going back through my Evernote this past week just looking. I find old things I've clipped that I forgot that I ever even read. And I read a Spurgeon quote I had saved a long, long time ago that explained really how I try to look at the world as a preacher, but also how I want all of you to look at the world. It's why I wish you could all be preachers so you could just do this every single week, but you can do this every single week. This is what Spurgeon said to his group of would-be ministers he was trying to teach in his lectures to his students. We ought to be always in training for text-getting and sermon-making. We have no leisure as ministers. We are never off-duty, but are on our watchtowers day and night. Bees are making honey from morning till night, and we should be always gathering food Watch for subjects as you go about the city or the country. Always keep your eyes and ears open, and you will hear and see angels. The world is full of sermons. Catch them on the wing. Spurgeon tells a story also in that book that one Sunday he would wait. I don't do this. Um, he would wait till Sunday afternoons to even start his Sunday evening sermons, to start preparing. And there was a Sunday afternoon where he was banging his head against the wall, feeling like he had nothing to say to his congregation that night. What am I going to preach? What am I going to preach? I don't have a text. It doesn't seem that God's giving me a text. And he looks out the window, and on a tree limb he sees a speckled bird. And he says, alas, tonight I shall preach on the great speckled bird. That's actually a text in the Old Testament that talks about the speckled bird, but I digress. But the point was, all of Spurgeon's sermons came from the Bible, but so much of his inspiration to go to the Bible came from the things that he saw in the world. He said, keep your eyes and your ears open, and you'll, the heavens will open up to, to you, and you will hear angels, but you have to catch them on the wing. He continues, a sculptor believes, whenever he sees a rough block of marble, that there's a noble statue concealed within it. 
and that he only has to chip away the superfluities and reveal it. So do you believe, do you believe that there is within the husk of everything the kernel of a sermon for the wise man? Be wise and see the heavenly in its earthly pattern. Hear the voices from the skies and translate them into the language of men. Always a preacher be you, O man of God, foraging for the pulpit in all provinces of nature and art, storing and preparing at all hours and seasons. See, the manger is in the world. This is where Christ reveals himself to us. And so we're called to have our eyes and ears open for looking how he might do so. The world is the manger. But there's another point from this text that leads us to this table. You know, Richard Baxter, a Puritan, Richard Baxter, a Puritan, you never expect to say such a thing. He said, nowhere is God so close to man as in Jesus Christ. And nowhere is Jesus Christ so close to us as in this table. In our passage, the angel tells the shepherd that the manger is a sign for them to show them who the Christ was and to lead them into his presence. Sign is sacramental language. John Calvin commenting on the manger as a sign says, the angel meets the prejudice which might naturally hinder the faith of the shepherds. For what a mockery is it that he whom God has sent to be the king and the only savior is seen lying in a trough that the mean and despicable condition in which Christ was might not deter the shepherds from believing in Christ, the angel tells them beforehand what they would see. See, he's saying, if you came and saw him lying in a manger, you'd think that precisely meant that he wasn't the Christ. But I'm telling you that manger is a sign so that when you see it, you will believe that he is the Christ. Calvin continues, This method of proceeding which might appear to the view of men absurd and almost ridiculous. The Lord pursues toward us every day, sending down to us from heaven the word of the gospel. He enjoins us to embrace Christ crucified and holds out to us signs in earthly and fading elements which raise us to the glory of a blessed immortality. Having promised to us spiritual righteousness, he places before our eyes a small portion of bread and wine. And in it, he seals the eternal life of our souls. I remember very well the first time that I partook of the Lord's Supper. And I was not a believer. I did not go to church I mean, a handful of times I went as a child, none as a teenager, but I got invited to go hear someone uh, play, do a musical solo, whom I knew. And so I walked into this Disciples of Christ church, and I heard the solo, and I listened to the sermon. I don't remember anything about it, but I remember the Lord's Supper. I had never heard of it. Had no clue what it was. All I knew was, here came a little food bowl, a little tray, and it had a cracker and some juice. And I said, oh, a cracker 
and some juice, and I drank from it, and I ate of it. Not knowing that the Apostle Paul warns later in the New Testament that he who eats and drinks of this unworthily heaps up condemnation upon himself. I was like Judas that night, sitting at the table of the Lord, only to walk out and betray him, and betray him, and betray him. Who would look for a king and a savior and a small piece of bread and in a cup? Who would look for a savior in a food bowl if God didn't tell us that's precisely where you need to look for him? What other religion says that their God offers himself to them as food and as drink? But it's what Christians have been doing and saying ever since the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, you may have come here tonight to experience some nostalgia. It's a sweet service. You may have come here out of tradition. You may have been pulled here by your family and you didn't really want to come. I don't know. You may have come here to light a candle. You might have even actually come to celebrate Christmas Eve. Jesus has come here too. And here's why he's come here. He has come here to feed you. To feed your souls. Our bodies were meant to live on bread. Our souls are meant to live on Jesus. So behold your king in everything that he's created, everywhere that he's created. And behold your king in the trough. Behold your king in the bread and the cup. In this sacrament that seals eternal life to your soul. Keep your eyes and ears open. And you may hear and see angels. And you will taste of the bread of heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, that though you are almighty, infinite, eternal, immutable God, yet you sent your Son, the second person of the Godhead, whom also is almighty, eternal, infinite, immutable to come and take flesh, to bear our infirmities, to live in this world, in our very flesh, and to die in our place. We rejoice in this Christmas message that God has become man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Would you help us to see him tonight? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's table, let's stand together and sing the first two stanzas of hymn number 201, O Little Town of Bethlehem.
You may be seated. Well, we come now to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the covenant of grace instituted by the command and example of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein he offers to us his body given for us in our sins and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is a meal that was instituted for believers. So if you are a believer who is here tonight, I'd encourage you to examine yourself, confess and repent of all known sin, and partake of this feast that Christ has given us. This is not First Presbyterian Church's table. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is Christ's table. So if you believe in him and have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you are welcome to partake of these elements. If you're here tonight and you are not a believer, we would ask you not to partake, but to simply let the elements pass by as they work their way through the pews. But I would urge you and plead with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, believe in him, and be baptized, and then come again later and join us at this table. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you not only in feasting upon your word, but now in feasting upon this sacrament. Would you take these common elements of the bread and of the cup, and would you now consecrate them for a holy use of presenting Jesus Christ to our souls as crucified for our sins. And might we now, through the power of your Spirit, feed upon him by faith. Thank you for this meal. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now hear the words of institution. As we distribute the bread, I'd ask you all to hold on to it until everyone has been served, and I'll let you know when we will all eat together. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after having given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
body and blood of Christ for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. body of Christ given for you. Take and eat. And in like manner, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. He makes us to lie down in green pastures and leads us by still waters. Our cup overflows. blood of Christ poured out for you. Drink from it. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for inviting us to your heavenly table. We pray that you would Seal us to thy courts above. Help us in these coming days as we celebrate the birth of our Savior to be filled with tidings of comfort and joy and to rejoice in the gospel of our Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing the third and fourth stanzas of hymn number 200. And one. Please be seated.
Let's stand together and sing Silent Night, Holy Night. find in your bulletins a responsive reading, and I'd ask you to respond with the bold printed words, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Merry Christmas. Amen.